Hey, it's Ian Altman. Welcome to part two of my discussion with Anthony Inarino. For those of you who may have forgotten from part one, Anthony is a fellow speaker, coach, trainer, and author of three books. We're talking today about his most recent book, Eat Their Lunch. And it's really a free-flowing conversation. I've gotten a lot of great feedback on. You can also catch Anthony's posts daily at thesalesblog.com. We're going to talk about all sorts of different topics, um, some of it relating to the second edition of Same Side Selling coming up, and also some of the key concepts in Eat Their Lunch. You're going to learn a ton from Anthony Inarino. When is the release of the the second edition of Same Side Selling? Uh, what's the release date on that? Um, you know what? The I'm, I'm waiting on the specific release date, but I know it's in March. So it's March 2019. Okay, coming up then. Yep. Okay, we'll send something out to the newsletter when that comes out. That's, that's great. And, and, and I will tell you, I was just reading something in your newsletter that, that I, want, I wanted to mention briefly, which is the notion of you talk about doing things better and this, this idea of, look, do the additional research before you make the phone call. Mm-hmm. I, 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 had a, I had someone call me um, last year. And it was a, it was a cold call. I made the mistake when I saw the the phone number. I didn't recognize it. I made the mistake of answering it. And and the person says, "Well, Mr. Altman, yeah, I, I know that like all speakers and authors, the biggest thing that you're concerned about is mo- you know you're probably uncomfortable talking about price and in sales situations. And our business, <laughs> we we do this for." speakers and authors just like you. And I said, wow, Justin, that's great. What is it that you saw on my website that gave you a sense that I'm uncomfortable in those situations? And you hear him typing in the background. And this is pause and an expletive. And he goes, oh. I said, Justin, what is it? He goes, well, I've read Same Side Selling. I said, well, <laughs> Justin, you may want to read it again. <laughs> it could be helpful. But, yeah, but, but the thing is, he, it, it's just that somebody taught him, just find a number and dial. Someone didn't teach him, before you dial, do 30 seconds of research so you don't look stupid. What, what does your in, inbox on LinkedIn look like? I mean, I, I, I have people pitching me, you know, sales training, you know, just yeah. straight, straight pitching it as if they've never looked at the profile at all, which I don't believe they have. You know, and in that that post about better, you know, people gripe like, oh, I hate putting stuff into the CRM. Well, that's because you're not trying to make it good. Yeah. You're trying to check a box. And anytime you decide, well, I'm just going to check a box, you're not, you're not going to enjoy it, and you're you're not going to, you know, do anything that actually improves the result that you're trying to create. And when when people complain about things like, you know, I've made a thousand sales calls. Why do I have to plan? Well, why do the New England Patriots practice for five days a week before they play? Because they're trying to win and you're trying to be thoughtful. You're trying to be intentional. You're trying to stack the deck in your favor so that you can go in and especially in a competitive displacement when you're trying to take uh, a client away from somebody they're already working with and have some level of satisfaction with, you're going to have to be on your game. So you want to do this work. But I think that the complaining that people do is it's just because they're not trying to make it better. And if they decided, well, I'm going to try to make this better than it is right now, then I can get your resourcefulness, your creativity, your initiative involved. 
And then you will do better because you're actually giving yourself over to whatever it is that you're doing. I, I don't understand uh, a lot of what people gripe about. Your CRM, I mean, that's the record of your relationships. And if you were to challenge uh, a salesperson, okay, you can leave and go to another company. What's the one thing you would want to take with you? All my relationships. Oh, okay. Yeah. Might be nice to have a record of those relationships. So why why wouldn't you invest in making sure that you captured things? I uh, I told this story a few weeks ago. I had a client from New Jersey, and he called me one day. And when I answered, he said, "Hey, Cher, what's happening, baby?" <laughs> and Cher's Cher's my wife's name. Yeah. And and I had only ever mentioned her name to him one time. One time he heard it, and I said, "Yeah, that is really funny." And uh, I said, "But how did you?" How did you remember her name? I've only said it once. He said, whenever somebody I do business with mentions their spouse or their children's name, I put it in my phone. And so your middle name in my phone now is your wife's name. A couple weeks later, I had occasion to call him. So when he answered, I said, Joy, is Jimmy around or is it safe? <laughs> and, and he died laughing. But that was that that was he his his intention. When you say something, that's an insight. Now he knows my wife's name. So our relationship changed because he thinks it's about intimacy and and knowing, you know, my wife's name, children's name, ages, sure. those kinds of things. And you think, well, I, I don't think that that's the right world that we live in. But of course it is. We of course, it's about value creation and of course, it's about business results. But you're also working with human beings and human beings are always going to be human and they're always going to talk about things that are outside of business when we're together, even though I wouldn't lead with that. But you do end up having long conversations with people and dinner with people, and you you should know things about them. Why not make your CRM a repository of all the insights you have about the individuals you come in contact with? Well, and and I think and I think the only the only trap that sometimes organizations fall into is that oftentimes the marketing organization, the executives, will say, "Oh, you know what." Our sales reps are talking to all these people. Here, we, we just made a small list of the 37 additional data elements we would like you to capture and put into the CRM when, you know, you're already talking to clients. And the, the advice that I give people is, look, you should encourage your reps to put anything into the CRM that helps them and helps the relationship with the clients. But if you now look at it as, Hey, you're now data researchers instead yeah. of reps, and I want you to also collect um, how many different buildings they have at their facility. And it's like, well, but we're not a facilities management company. Yeah, yeah, but at some point we want to have that for additional, you know, information. It's like, well, listen, let your researchers do research. These guys should be focusing on, you know, your, your team of men and women who are who are pursuing these opportunities should be looking at. What's the client trying to solve? What's important to them? How do we measure that? That's what they should be focused on. And all the all the personal things you're mentioning, I think, are incredibly valuable. I know that in our business, anytime we send a gift, we make a concerted effort to make sure we know their spouse's name. And we'll often personalize things with both of them. If you know John Rulin, it's something I learned from John and um, in his book, Giftology. But, you know, the whole idea is, you know, those personal elements really matter to the salesperson, they should be capturing it. It's when people start capturing extraneous information that it's, look, the, the, you can't have your rep collect all this other information. It's not productive. No, and I, I think that's they, the thing that I try to tell sales organizations is, for, first of all, 
selling is really just made up of two things. The the first set of activities I would call opportunity creation, and the second uh, half I would call opportunity capture. So so those are the two things. You're always working on those. Everything else is commentary on that. And if you're having conversations and asking for commitments and moving opportunities forward, that's the right thing to do. But when you send people on uh, research projects and other things like that, it's a distraction from the fundamental thing that salespeople do. There's a lot of people who can do research and salespeople can pick up a lot of insights when they're paying attention and taking good notes. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I I don't think that salespeople should be researchers per se. And I I do think that I've written this a a half a dozen times, minimal viable research on a client. So don't make the mistake of calling Ian and saying, Ian, we'd like to uh, sell you an approach for having better client conversations because you might already have some thoughts about that yourself. So not, not a great not a great starting point, but but enough information that you can look and say, okay. Ian's not a good prospect for us, but this group is a good prospect for us because they look like the kind of people that we can help and our value proposition creates the greatest value for. But they're right now not even doing the minimum viable, uh, especially on LinkedIn. I mean, everybody just straight pitches everyone now. Yes. And it's and it's it's gotten to the point where when I get a LinkedIn invitation, by default, I respond and say, hey, what inspired the connection? And if I don't get a response within two days, I know it's just some automated piece and I'll ignore it. Then uh, you're doing a lot of ignoring. Yeah, absolutely. But I also get people who say, oh, I'm a huge fan. I've done this and this. Hey, happy to connect. How can I help? I was trying to just pull up one right now, but uh, yeah, I've got one right here. Just want to reach out to see if you have any type of expansion plans on the horizon or in need of a business line of credit or any funding at this time. We offer term loans, line of credit, invoice factoring. This person, and again, this person was told that this is what they should do is copy and paste this in and send it to everyone on LinkedIn. And and my guess is out of 20,000 emails, they get two leads. And so they're going, look, it's working. Exactly. And and they're getting two leads from people who couldn't care less as opposed to one of the one of the one of the piece of advice I give people is, look, at best, if you if you're taking this shotgun approach, which I would totally discourage people from doing. But if you're doing that, then at at, at best, what you may want to do is reach out and say, hey, here are the types of problems that we solve. And, gee, Anthony, do you know of one or two individuals who might be facing that challenge where we may be able to help. And guess what? If you fit that profile, you'll say, well, yeah, one of them's me. <laughs> and, and and if not, you don't feel like you've been sold to. You feel like it's just someone trying to find, here's the people I'm good at helping. Do you know someone who fits that profile? That's a good start, though. Just uh, who who are we good at helping? And I I will continue to argue that targets are better than leads. You know, Knowing who you want and why you want them and the value that you can create for them is a lot better than than going through a bunch of leads. You know, it's it absolutely is, and I just think that too often people take this scatter approach. And so, anytime someone asks me, "Well, gee, you've helped all these companies grow. What's the key?" I said, "Pick the one or two areas where you solve problems in that area better than anybody else." There's a good starting point. I just pick one or two things that you do better. Like, for example, for me. I speak to B2B audiences, and someone has to convince me 
why their business is very much like a B2B company if I don't see it as B2B. So, for example, financial services, people who are wealth advisors, the way high net worth individuals make decisions is very much aligned with how B2B organizations make decisions. So I speak to those audiences too. But if someone says, hey, um, here's this audience, it's all consumers, or we sell to the end consumer, my comment is, you know what? There are a lot of people really talented at speaking to that audience who are better at that than I am. Who would you give them? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, candidly, it depends. Like, for example, Phil, it, Phil Jones. Yeah, I was just, I was just going to say. So Phil, Phil, Phil crosses over both. So Phil can speak really well to the B two B audience and the B two C side because his tactics in exactly what to say um, really apply universally because his approach there is so solid and it's all integrity based. So when it comes to that, that, that works really well. In fact, with some of the speaker bureaus, Phil and I have actually said to them, look, here's where Ian's a better fit. Here's where Phil's a big, a better fit. And we're happy to tell them that transparently that says, here are the scenarios because candidly, we've had times where they'll book me and I'm thinking when I'm on stage, Phil should have been here and Phil will call me after an event and say, you know, it was really good, but, they would have been better off hearing from you in this case. And it's just, you know, so we're always trying to find the right fit, which is something that I think more and more professionals can learn from, which is, look, the last thing a speaker wants to be on is the wrong stage in front of the wrong audience. And the last thing a sales professional wants to spend their time on is speaking with the wrong prospect or the wrong client trying to solve a problem that you're not good at solving. Well, you read Ether Lunch, so I appreciate you doing that. But what else are you reading? I'm interested to know what uh, what, what you're reading and what has your interest. You know what? There, I, I I will tell you selfishly that I have not been reading as much lately as um, as, as I typically do because I'm working on a another book. Yeah, and so I once, know what that's like. So once I get into that, I I kind of shut out reading a lot of other books because I don't want it to bias in me. I don't want to make it so that I'm all of a sudden reading something and say, wow, that's really great. Next thing you know, I've paraphrased it into my book. So when it comes to that, it gets a little bit um, – it's a little bit different. But um, what, did I, what did I just read? Hold on because there, there's a book that I just read that I, that I really enjoyed that – I mean – you you had James Clear recently on yeah. and 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 um and Atomic Habits I thought was was fantastic so I you know I read that recently um the other one was um the alter ego effect I don't know that one okay so the alter ego effect and it's something that um it's really really fascinating so the the idea behind the alter <coughs> ego effect and it's by Todd Herman is and I'm having to make the introduction because I, I just interviewed him for um, for for my podcast as well. And so Todd talks about this idea of people having these alter egos that give them the ability to perform at a level that maybe they wouldn't otherwise. And talks about a number of different examples where he was going to speak about alter egos. He's dealt with high performing athletes, and like he said, look, people come to him because. They're playing tennis at the U.S. Open 
in two weeks and their mental game isn't right. So it's not like he can build these long-term habits. He has to get to the root of what's holding him back very quickly to move the needle. And so he talks about different strategies to make it so that, okay, geez, so if you're always concerned about price, let's say, in a sales role, then you may put on the um, – you know, Victor, the, you know, you, you have an alter ego that's Victor value and Victor value never cares about price. And now, so mentally you have that mindset when you go into the meeting of, of Victor value who never cares about price. And maybe that's what you need to overcome that, that notion of just focusing on price. I just have this picture of Victor value and he's wearing like a Vikings, you know, type helmet. He's got big horns coming out of it. And, Super confident. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting though because that is a, a perspective to take, and you know, giving them the alter ego to say there's now this perspective. So now you represent this perspective. Yeah. Uh, co- cost is more important than price, and now I'm going to teach people value, which which a lot of people need to be taught. That's an interesting approach. Yeah. I'll pick the book up. Yeah. So so it's funny because I, I say well I've been reading much, but you know. I've read that, I've read your book. I mean, I, I still read. It's just um, I I kind of read and go, wow, it was interesting, and and put it aside um, more so than maybe I had in the past. Because in the past, I'd probably read, you know, in, in a in a normal period, I'll read two or three books a month, and now I'm probably reading, you know, one book a month. I I sometimes when in uh, the middle of editing and writing books, I can get to zero a month just because yeah. I don't I don't want to take anything else in. Yeah, uh, I've had that same view that you do. I don't want to take anything else in. I just want to make sure that what I'm writing is is my truth, yeah. and I, I I don't like to infect some of that stuff. I'll, I mean, there's different ways people write books. Like James Clear's book is clearly a, a tremendously researched piece of work. Oh yeah, and and mine is field research, not uh, not yeah. citing. Yep. you know the scientific studies. And I think that's true for most of us who do what we do. Exactly. And, and I tell you, one of, the, one of the most interesting conversations I had last year was with Jim Cathcart, who is another guy who focuses on integrity-based selling. And Jim said something. I'm interested in your thought on it. Jim said something that really caught my attention. He said, he said I think the term closing is a bad term. He said, because closing implies shutting something. He said, we should get rid of the term closing and instead – we should refer to it as we're confirming a sale, not closing a sale. And I was like, oh, man, you're going to kill, you know, you're going to kill all of us who have written a book mentioning the term closing. <laughs> but well, here, it's an here, interesting thought. I, I, my second book is called The Lost Art of Closing. And when, when I handed it to the publisher, the name that I had given it is The Art of Commitment Gaining. Yeah. And, and when I went to them, they said, uh, the, the CEO said, Everybody loves closing books. Yeah. And and I said, everybody used to love closing books. Now the word is a negative connotation, even though there's nothing in the book that would suggest that this is Glengarry Glenn Ross or anything like it. It's super consultative. It's actually a framework of 10 commitments that you tend to need to gain time, explore change, commitment to change, commitment to collaborate, commitment to build consensus, commitment to invest. I mean, so there's all these and and what it is is it's a it's a schematic or a blueprint for having the conversation around the commitments. So I was with uh, Seth Godin uh, last year, 
and I was complaining about this book hasn't done as well as the first book at the time, and this the third book hasn't been it wasn't out yet. Yeah. And I said I'm disappointed because I know I get notes. I literally get notes that say, I wasn't going to buy your book because I didn't like the idea of closing. But then my friend read it and they told me that they made fifty thousand dollars in in uh, commission over what they did the year before once they understood what these commitments were and what they were missing. So I had to read it and it's nothing like I thought it was going to be. It's great. That's it's fine. helping me. But I, I read that and I'm like, yeah, so the title kept them away. So the title keeps some people away from the book, even though it has nothing to do with uh, always be closing. It, it's exactly the opposite. In the the little nonlinear framework, the commitment to, to buy is the ninth of the 10 commitments, with the 10th being the commitment to execute because so many people – sell something and the client doesn't do what's necessary to actually capture the value of what they buy, that the 10th ends up being execution. But you have to go through all these other commitments to get to that one. And this is how do you slow down, make sure you get these commitments, make sure you're serving the buyer so you're on on the same side, you're working on this problem together, and you end up making it a lot faster and a lot easier for everyone involved. So Seth reached behind him and pulled out a book that was called um, All Marketers Are Liars. Yep. And he said, I named this book. And uh, it's the worst performing book I had at launch. And it's because people don't want to be liars. And he changed it to All all Marketers Are Liars Is Scratched Out Storytellers. Yeah. So I think we're going to try to re-release The Lost Art of Closing. Uh, with a different title because the book was originally titled The Art of Commitment Gaining. And I think that selling is conversations and commitments. Yeah. And when it makes sense to take the next step, we we make a commitment to do this next thing together. And we make a lot of little commitments and especially complex strategic B2B sales. These are relationships. And, and there's no way that I would ever recommend, and I know you wouldn't either because of our conversation, that you try to shortcut all these commitments to get to the close faster because you're not serving the client. And the reason they're saying no is because you didn't do these things that that allow you to get to that conversation about moving forward with a solution. It's exactly. In fact, one of the, one of the ways I often describe it is if you think of it in a medical paradigm, if you had, you know, if God forbid you had some terrible ailment, some life-threatening disease and it was really important to solve, obviously. And you met somebody who seemed like they had the cure for that. Guess what? You as the quote buyer of that procedure would be selling them. <laughs> right? You wouldn't have to wait for someone's great closing line. Right. If, in fact, if you said, if the doctor said, look, here's this diagnosis and I have this treatment that we've performed a thousand times with with a hundred percent success, and then the doctor looked at you and said, "So, what would you like to do next?" You'd say, "Well, so how do I get the treatment?" And that's yeah. the mindset that I think people need to have, which is, "Look, here's the bottom line: the good physician doesn't recommend that treatment unless the patient has that condition." And, and so, the first thing you have to do is diagnose if they have the condition, and if they do, then you're in a position to suggest. The treatment, and I, and, and, I just and, did this. I, I had a, a hernia from from deadlifting, uh, way more weight than I should have because I am and not an offensive lineman in the NFL, <laughs> nor am I a powerlifter. But 
I was feeling good one day and, and did a little bit too much. But the, the surgeon, as I, I met with him, he said, you know, do, do you want to do something about this? And do, do you want to have a surgery? You don't have to, but, you know, and, and it was my decision. And, he, yeah. and I'm compelled to show up in his office and he doesn't need to pitch me. Yeah. And and that's that's what that's what I really strive for people to get to is that notion of look the I think I think Phil Jones the one who, who says um, who, who says look sales is earning the right to make a recommendation and so that notion of making recommendation you can only make the recommendation if you understand enough about their situation to know that that recommendation is right for them and. As soon as people in sales roles realize that it's about delivering a result instead of making the sale, then making the sale becomes really easy. You just have to start from the right place. Well, you are at ianaltman.com. So we're going to send people there. And then um, the book will come out sometime in March. Yep. Correct. Okay. Yep. So we'll, and it'll, we'll, it'll be on Amazon for for pre order before then. I mean, it's basically the second edition is replacing the current edition of Same Side Selling, and and I know that the best way for people to get to you is so should it be the sales blog or should it be Inarino yeah. Either one gets you to the same website, and yeah. you've got a newsletter, so we'll send people to sign up for Same Side Selling newsletter. Great, and, and I sign and, I, I signed up for yours as well because I realized that. I would go to your site and look at stuff, and for whatever reason, like a knucklehead, I hadn't signed up for it. And um, and I just, you know, it's I'm still amazed and fascinated that you create content every single day um, because I I, I created articles once a week for years, and I've now ratcheted back and I I do more video, but I'm just still impressed that anybody can, like you and Seth Godin, can, can write on a daily basis. I, I I love writing, and yeah. uh, some people say, you know, how do you write every day? And I think, well, how do you not write every day? And yeah. it's uh, it's some of us are wired that way. I like video too. Uh, video's good, but I I like the writing process. And uh, I forget who some famous person I once said, how do how do I know what I think until I say it? And and for me, that's part of the writing process is how do I know what I believe until I write it? Yeah, and. I, and I just uh, I have a lot on my mind. Plus, you know, if you actually have clients and you work in the real world, there's always something that comes up every day that you're like, yeah, you know what? Somebody needs a little help with that. Yeah. Very often I'll get a question at an event and I'm like, that's that's something that a lot of people must be thinking. And that <laughs> yes. becomes the next piece of content. Or too many people are thinking, you know, <laughs> that, that they've been told to go to LinkedIn and pitch and oh. they need to be told there's a better way. Yeah. So, well, I, thanks so much for uh, for your time. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to get to meet you this way. And I hope we get to do this face-to-face. And now uh, when I'm in D.C. next time, I will make sure that uh, if you're there, we get coffee. The problem with you and I meeting up is the same thing on, on the secret Facebook group that we both belong to. When you look at where people are, they're never where they live. Exactly. So you, you you don't really get a chance. Like, well, I'm going to be in New York. And they're like, oh, that's too bad. I'm in Fort Lauderdale. Exactly. And like, well, I'm in Fort Lauderdale two weeks later. Well, no, and then I'm in Kansas. You're just like, okay, so it's really hard. We should have a master calendar out there <laughs> well, so I, that that we, we know. Like, if you're here, these other people may be in that neighborhood in that particular time. Yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think it's funny that 
that for earlier as we were talking, it's like, yeah, you're going to be in San Francisco this week. I'll be there in two weeks. It's like, you know, yeah. just, you know, just the, the way just it works. Missed. So, so I'll often in that group just post, Hey, I'm going to be in this, this city, this city and that city over the next few weeks. And it's, what I think is funny is there's times where I've been speaking in Scottsdale and I'll get together with two other speakers. None of us live in Scottsdale or Phoenix. Yes. We just all happen to be there at different events at the well, uh, at the same time. There, there's some cities, you know, uh, Phoenix is one, Dallas is one, Chicago is one, Orlando is one. You know, there's some of these cities that you're just going to speak in if you're speaking. Yep. I mean, you're you're just going to end up there because that's yep. where events are held. Exactly. Single air single airport uh, cities. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, Anthony, thanks for sharing your wisdom here. This is a fun conversation. I think we should do it again. Uh, we will. Thanks okay. so much. All right. It was such a pleasure speaking with Anthony. I'm sure you've got a ton of key takeaways, and I'm really interested to get your thoughts on how this type of format worked for you with this two-part interview, a little bit longer format, where it's just me and Anthony having a discussion about sales and business philosophy that hopefully can help your business. Remember, this show gets a direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic you think I should cover or a guest I should have on the program, just drop me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, especially your customer.